Hey everybody, it's Brian Church family and friends. I am so thrilled that you're here with us today at Heritage and we would get to share this time together. My name is Brian and I have been looking forward all week to this opportunity that we were going to have to be back together to download our series of messages where we're talking about some of the most significant challenges to being a healthy person. Some of these things you've got to think about beforehand. You know, when Sarah and I were preparing to be married, we went through a program of premarital counseling with an experienced counselor who could help us have some important conversations. And we wanted to do everything we could to start our marriage off on the best foot with some resources that could help us to be a healthy couple. And so that premarital counselor administered an assessment for us. It was almost like taking a test, except there weren't any wrong answers. There were just true answers. And so we we took this assessment that asked us a bunch of questions about our personality and our preferences and our vision for the future. And after all of our answers were tabulated together, this counselor was able to look at those results and walk us through a series of discussions about some of the habits and some of the assumptions that each one of us was bringing into our relationship. And it turns out that Sarah was right about all of it, you know. Um, But we, we talked about topics like how we each managed our finances and how we envisioned managing finances as a couple. We, we anticipated together, or we talked about how we anticipated spending time with our extended family on both sides of the family. We talked about the role that we wanted faith and spirituality to play in our life as a couple, and the brilliance of this assessment, the brilliance of this instrument that we used to facilitate these conversations was that the whole thing was based on input from experienced marriage therapists. And it was designed to inspire conversations about some of the topics that have all, had already caused problems for a lot of marriages in the past. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there's this counselor that we were working with, and he didn't know us all that well. He, he didn't know us well enough to be able to predict the kinds of arguments or mismatched expectations that we might experience later on. But if that counselor could help, could help us anticipate some of the common problems that faced other people's marriages, if that counselor could help us envision some of the pitfalls that other people have fallen into, then it might have prepared us for the road that we were walking together. And that whole concept is a whole lot like the conversation we're having in our current series of messages here called Glittering Vices. So we're talking about some of the challenges that Christians often face in their spiritual journey. Some of the challenges that are common to those who try to live their lives as disciples of Jesus. Of course, each individual is different. We all face our own temptations. We all have our own personalities. We all have our own preferences. I mean, we're so unique, right? Each one of us is our own spiritual person. But for centuries now, Christians have recognized that there are some patterns. There are some consistent problems, some typical struggles that seem to come up time and time and time again for people who are committed to living the Christian life. In fact, some of these, uh, this is so common that centuries ago, some wise Christians developed a list 
of these struggles, and they called that list the seven capital vices, or you may have heard it referred to as the seven deadly sins. And the items on this list aren't really sins per se. They're not actions or behaviors. They're habits. They're attitudes. They are appetites. We've discussed them as habits of the heart. And we've talked about things like envy and greed, which are feelings, characteristics, habits of the heart that can sometimes begin to take root inside of us. And when habits like envy and greed begin to take root in our hearts, then that leads to all sorts of unsavory and ungodly behavior. It leads to the kinds of behavior that damages relationships and distorts the image of God inside of every one of us. And so throughout this series, what we're trying to do is we're trying to let the Holy Spirit work on our hearts. We're inviting God's Spirit to work on us so that we can begin to recognize these common pitfalls, recognize these issues for what they are before we fall into the pit. And we're hoping that by recognizing these problems and how we're susceptible to them, we're going to be able to turn our hearts in a trajectory more towards God. We're going to be able to say, God, help me to avoid, teach me to avoid the pit of greed. Teach me to avoid the problem of envy. And I suspect, I suspect that each and every one of us is going to easily identify with the vice that we're talking about today. Today we're talking about the vice of wrath. Now wrath is not a word that you use just a whole lot. You don't hear that word every day, but you see it all the time. We see it all the time. We see it on the local news. Just about every night you turn on the local news and you'll hear stories about a road rage incident, about somebody that let their temper fly off the handle. Or you might hear a story on the weekend about a fight that broke out between parents at a youth sporting event, right? I mean, we see evidence of wrath all the time. And what I want you to hear me explain this morning is that wrath is what it looks like when anger gets out of hand. Wrath is what it looks like when anger goes awry, when anger overflows and floods its banks and spreads where it's not supposed to go and it does damage. Wrath is an excessive anger that gets expressed in the wrong way or expressed in the wrong direction. Of course, when we talk about anger being expressed the wrong way, it implies that there's a right way, right? And, and I want to tell you, I believe that's true. In fact, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that anger in and of itself is not sinful. Feeling anger inside, feeling frustration, feeling upset inside is not something that's dishonoring to God. And the reason I know that is because as you read through the pages of the Old Testament, you see moment after moment, story after story, time after time, when God himself is angry. The Bible makes no apology for that. No excuse. It says this is part of what it looks like for a good God to care for his creation properly. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God personified, God embodied, and Jesus gets angry too. In fact, 
Jesus gets angry multiple times. He gets angry at religious extortion whenever people are trying to put up a barrier between somebody else and being able to connect to God through worship. He gets upset about legalism. Jesus gets angry about self-righteousness. He gets angry when powerful people love rules more than they love mercy. Jesus gets angry quite often. There's one time he got angry, multiple times actually, that he got angry at his closest followers, his disciples, because they tried to overrule God's plan for his life. There was one time Jesus got angry at a fig tree. That was a funny story. You ought to look that one up. But what I want you to hear me say is that if Jesus got angry, then we know that anger in and of itself is not wrong. But as you read through all of the rest of the New Testament, as you read through all of the teachings of Jesus and his disciples there, you'll find time after time consistent warnings to be careful because what it always says is anger can so easily reach that tipping point. Anger can so easily overflow and be expressed as wrath. Paul says multiple times in multiple letters to different churches, he says that Christians should strive to rid themselves of bitterness and rage and anger. James, who was the brother of Jesus, said, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And I memorized that verse when I was a child at Vacation Bible School, but this next verse I missed out on. He said, the reason we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry is because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And some of us know that's true. Some of us just looking at our own life, our own struggle with anger, we know that that's true. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount passage that my sister Marcia read for us a few moments ago, Jesus warned us that when we're angry, that's when we're most at risk of doing something that could get us into trouble. When we're angry, we're right there on the edge. We're right there on the line, and it could go either way. And the way we manage that anger, the way we deal with that anger could lead to healing or it could lead to hurt. In fact, the scriptures contain lots of examples of people like Cain and Esau and Moses whose anger boiled over into wrath and it caused great damage in their lives. And so the question that we've got to wrestle with together is, how does a follower of Jesus learn to handle anger the way Jesus does? How does somebody who wants to follow Jesus with their life learn to manage some of those uncontrollable feelings that boil up? Some of when your blood is boiling, when you feel your face getting red because of how something has upset you. How does a follower of Jesus learn to handle anger like Jesus handles anger? And for that, I want to direct your attention to a very little-known story from Jesus' travels with his disciples people who themselves had a lot to learn about how to manage their anger in Jesus' way. The story we're going to look at today is in Luke chapter 9. If you've got a Bible or maybe the Heritage app on your phone and you want to click that Bible button, you're welcome to join us there. And when you get there, you're looking at one of the four different accounts in the Bible that's written. It's, it's an, a, a witness, an interviewed witness account 
of Jesus's life on earth. Luke is one of the four biblical authors who wrote a report about Jesus's life, but he's the only one who records this particular incident that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 9. The setup looks like this. For months now, Jesus's closest followers, the ones we called his disciples at that time, they've been traveling with him, following him, working with him, witnessing his miracles, hearing his unprecedented teaching. Okay, they've been hanging out with Jesus and they've been hearing him say paradigm shifting, crazy sounding things like, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. I mean, they've heard him teach that in public. They have, they have felt the surprise because they've never heard anybody else say that kind of thing before. They've been listening as Jesus has said things like, be merciful the way your heavenly Father is merciful. In fact, after months of traveling with him, witnessing his teaching, witnessing his miracles, these disciples even got sent out on their own ministry trip. And they were supposed to go and preach about the kingdom of God the way Jesus did. And they were supposed to go invite God through prayer to heal people the way Jesus had been doing. Jesus gave them this instruction as they went out on their trip. He said, if you show up someplace where you're not welcomed, he says, just shake the dust off your feet I don't know if you can see that on the camera, but I'm shaking them. Shake the dust off your feet and leave peacefully. That was the instruction that Jesus gave to this, this, these disciples. So that's the backstory. And by the time we get near the end of Luke, Luke chapter 9, Jesus has entered this new phase of his ministry, and he's decided now is the time for me to head to Jerusalem where's the, where there's going to be this ultimate showdown between Jesus and the religious authorities, the religious leaders of his day. And so as Jesus and his disciples are traveling toward Jerusalem, Luke 9.52 says... Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there in that Samaritan village did not welcome Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. Okay, catch what's going on here. This, it's already unusual that Jesus took the route to get to Jerusalem that he took. It's already unusual that Jesus chose to travel through the region of the Samaritans. There are centuries of bad blood history between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it all stems from major disagreement about religion. And so these two groups typically did not associate with one another, which means it's not surprising when Jesus is looking for a place to stay or a place to preach, he's looking for some, some, some village in Samaria that would receive him. It's not surprising when the Samaritan village says, oh, no way, we're closed. We don't have any room for you and your kind. It's not surprising. I mean, the, the, the Samaritan village might not have welcomed any group of traveling Jews, but this group, full of disciples following a traveling rabbi on his way to Jerusalem, I mean, this group is obviously suspect to them. And so they say, no, your group's not welcome here. Move along. And verse 54 says, when the disciples, James and John. I want you to remember these names for the rest of the sermon, okay? When the disciples, James and John, 
saw this, when they saw the response, they heard about the reaction from the Samaritan village. When they saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Now, you got to know, James and John are brothers, and they already have a reputation for being assertive. They already have a reputation for being forceful, but this is aggressive even for them. They were ready to wipe people off of the face of the earth because of this response. They were ready to destroy life and property. They were ready to endanger innocent people, including the children of this village, because they were so offended that hospitality was being withheld. They want to use the power vested in them by the Holy Spirit, the same power that has allowed them to go out on this ministry trip and to pray that God would heal people who were ill or crippled. He, 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 they wanted to use the power vested in them by the Holy Spirit of God to burn down a village for saying Jesus can't stay there. So far as I can tell, this is the earliest recorded incident of road rage that I've ever read. I mean, think about it. You got a group of weary travelers who are offended by some other strangers on the journey. And in fact, they're so angry, so offended by this rudeness that they're ready to take a detour. They're ready to delay their journey. They're ready to distract themselves from the real mission of where they're trying to go because they see an opportunity to ruin somebody's life who deserves it. And it's understandable that they were angry. They probably had a lot of reasons to feel angry. I figure James and John, besides, besides the personal insult, I mean, they were, they were being personally insulted by saying, no, it's not just Jesus. All of Jesus' group is, is un, uninvited, unwelcome in this town. So they're feeling the personal offense, the personal insult of being declined lodging. But I think on top of that, they're upset that their teacher who is a man of prominence to them, you know, a man of importance. Like, don't you know who this is? Their teacher is being denied too. And so James and John, I imagine that they thought it was their duty to do something. Like it was their responsibility as people who were loyal to Jesus. It was their duty as disciples to defend the teacher's honor. Their anger and their, their idea of a response probably felt to them totally justified. In fact, when they suggested the idea to Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven, raining down, burning up this village and all of its inhabitants, and do you want us to destroy them that way because of them saying, no, they don't have a place for you to stay? When they suggested this to Jesus, I think they probably thought he would say yes. I think they probably assumed that he would approve of their suggestion. Because usually that's how it goes with anger inside of us, right? The reason anger can trip us up so easily is because anger always seems justified in the moment. If it didn't seem like the right thing to do, we wouldn't be doing it, right? Like we, we do that because that's what seems like the situation calls for. 
Anger always feels justified in the moment. I mean, sure, there might be some times when you could look back. There might be some times in hindsight, in in retrospect, you might sometimes be able to look back on some incident and realize that maybe you overreacted just a little bitty tiny bit, you know, maybe once in a while. But in the heat of the angry moment, we always feel like our response is appropriate. That's why we chose that response. We feel like we're standing up for what's right. We feel like we're standing up for what we deserve. We feel like we're standing up for what's important. And I think that's what's happening with James and John in this situation. Contrary to what you might suspect, I don't, I don't think James and John are just pyromaniacs who are looking to see something burn. I think they felt like this is what needed to happen. I think they felt like this is what should happen. I think they felt like these Samaritans were asking for it, that they deserved to be punished for their rude treatment of Jesus. But verse 55 tells us the rest of this short story Verse 55 says that when James and John mentioned their fire from heaven idea, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Your translation might say Jesus spoke sternly to them. Jesus said, not only no, but no way. This is not what it's going to be about. Jesus rebuked them, and then he and his disciples went to another village. And I wish so badly that Luke would have told us more detail. I mean, that's the end of this little segment of the story. I wish so badly that Luke would have recorded what Jesus said. I wish we knew if there was an ensuing conversation, if Jesus was like, boys, what are you thinking? And let them explain themselves, you know. I wish that we had a script, a play-by-play of all of the interaction that happened in the next few moments. And it's not, I don't just wish that because of my own nosy curiosity. I wish that we could read that conversation because I think I could learn a lot about my own battle with anger. You see, we know, we know that in that moment, Jesus didn't say, James, John, you know it's sinful to be angry. We know he didn't say that. We know he didn't tell James and John that anger itself was wrong. Why do we know that? Because Jesus got angry. But Jesus must have been pointing out or reminding them that their anger in this moment, their anger in this situation, their anger and the way it was, it was trying to express itself in that minute was inappropriate. It was misplaced. It was disordered. It was out of line. It had gone awry. And that's what's so easy for us to miss. When it comes to my own anger, it's so easy for me to miss the moment when anger reaches that tipping point and becomes a problem. With my own anger, it's so easy for me to just sail right on by that moment when anger has slipped into wrath. Because it's hard in the moment to tell the difference between righteous anger and selfish anger, right? Right? 
It's hard in the moment to be able to tell the difference between I'm standing up for what's right or I'm just standing up for what I want. Those are two different things. And in the heat of the moment, it's so difficult to tell the difference, which is why Jesus and Paul and James are trying to tell us over and over again, be careful when you're angry. When you're angry, you're right there at the cusp of getting yourself into trouble. I mean, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There's, there is an anger that pushes back against injustice. In fact, anger is one of the ways that we show that we care. Think about it for a second. If we were just simply apathetic to all of the hardships that other people face in this life, if we looked at all of the difficulties that other people go through, if we looked at the suffering of civilians who get attacked by other nations, if we looked at the difficulties that other people face and we just said, eh, that would not be virtuous at all. It wouldn't be loving, it wouldn't be kind. Those kinds of situations deserve for us to become incensed about them, for us to become angry about them. But anger turns into wrath when it slips into fighting for a selfish cause and when it begins to fight dirty. Anger slips past righteousness and it slips into wrath when it starts from, what do I want the most? When it starts from, what's best for me? When it starts from, how can I get even or get ahead? When we start to fight for our own agenda, when we start to, or when we start to fight so that we can retain control, when we start to fight for our own dignity, when we are fighting for our own reputation, when we're fighting to correct something that has violated our high expectations, that's when our anger can get out of control and it can get the better of us. And so here we are, we're on this spiritual journey. We're traveling this road with Jesus, going through life, facing various inconveniences and disappointments and offenses along the way. And I gotta tell you, road rage on the spiritual journey is a real issue, right? I mean, going through life with Jesus, you're going to find all sorts of reasons that you're going to think, I am angry at what was just done to me. I am angry at what just happened at the church. I am angry at some decision that somebody made. I'm angry at what somebody said about God. There's going to be all sorts of reasons to start feeling your blood boil when you're on this journey with Jesus. And if we look at Jesus... If we ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you think? What do you think about how, how, much, how much response does this deserve? Is this one of those call down fire from heaven kind of moments? You look at Jesus and you're going to find that much of the time, much of the time we get angry about the wrong things. Much of the time we express our anger in the wrong way. And much of the time we hold on to our anger for far too long. And so as we're traveling this spiritual road with Jesus, we may find ourselves in situations where internally we're beginning to be filled with rage and we got to decide 
We got to decide for ourselves. If Jesus just keeps on walking, if Jesus keeps going down the road and doesn't stop to punish or discipline or gripe out somebody, if Jesus just keeps on walking, are we going to keep going with him? Or are we going to tell Jesus, hey, get out of my way for a second so I can deal with this? How are we going to handle our anger? How are we going to handle when those feelings of rage start to bubble up? You know, one of the things I've noticed is that sometimes our anger, James said it doesn't produce the kind of results that God desires. Human anger doesn't produce the kind of results God desires. I've noticed sometimes our, our anger can shut down the possibilities for relationship and redemption that God has in store for us. And I want to point your attention to something else that Luke wrote. Luke, the same guy who wrote down this account of Jesus' life, he also wrote a second volume. It's called the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament portion of the Bible, and the book of Acts primarily tells the story of the first generation of Christians after Jesus resurrected from the dead. And in Acts chapter 8, there's this moment, this moment when all of the Christians who have been gathering and building community together in the city of Jerusalem suddenly start to face persecution. There's other powerful people in the city of Jerusalem who don't want them there anymore. And so they start going through hardship. And because of that, some of the Christians start, start dispersing to other regions. And Acts chapter 8 said, in verse 4, it says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Stick with me here for a second. Philip, this is another character we haven't met yet. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Stay tuned. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Because with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. All right, now pay attention to this. We're talking about something that's happened well after, long after, at, at least months, probably a couple of years after the time when Jesus and his followers traveled through Samaria for the first time. And we come to this moment where the church has been scattered by persecution, and one of Jesus' original closest followers, Philip, ends up in, did you catch it? Samaria. The place where Jews don't like to go. Maybe that's why he went there. He thought Jews wouldn't chase him there, you know. He ends up in Samaria, and because he sees an opportunity, he starts telling people about the news that changed his life, and people are paying attention. People are tuning in. They're receiving the gift of God in their life. And you skip down just a few more verses. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 and following. It says, When the apostles who were still in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, listen to this, they sent Peter 
And who? John. Now that's a common name, I know. But we're talking about the same guy. All right. Earlier, it was James and John, these two brothers. Acts chapter 8, that the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received and accepted the word of God, and they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when Peter and John arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 17 says, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if that Luke chapter 9 story had gone differently? Can you imagine what it must have been like for John to walk into the region of Samaria and see the familiar places that he recently wanted to burn to the ground? And when he shows up, there's an outbreak of the Holy Spirit. When he shows up, suddenly God is at work in a place that John thought, God, the only work God's going to want to do here is to smite him. He shows up to this place. He's been here before. He's walked these trails. He's seen these businesses. He has seen these towns. He walks into this place, and suddenly people are begging for him. Come stay with us. Come to our town and tell us more about the good news of Jesus and I can't help but think can't help but think that John must have remembered the time that he wanted to burn these people up because they were rude to him and maybe maybe just maybe maybe John had a second opportunity right then and there to reckon with the place of wrath in his own heart to reckon with the root of anger that lived in his life. And that really is the key. If you want to stay out of danger with this particular vice, if you want to stay out of spiritual danger here, you've got to re-examine your anger. If you want to stay out of danger, you've got to re-examine your anger. You've got to re-examine the things that make you angry. You got to re-examine the ways you express your anger. You got to re-examine how long you hold on to your anger because even though Jesus got angry time and time again, what we constantly see from Jesus is that when Jesus was angry, he didn't hurt people. He never hurt people. He told the truth. He expressed truth with grace. And he processed his anger, but he didn't hurt people. And human anger, boy, we got a long way to go. We got to take an inventory of our anger. We've got to imagine for ourselves what might God be doing in this place, in this situation? What might God be doing in me in this moment? And the most natural thing in the world, the most natural thing in the world is to say, Jesus, I'll handle this one. Step aside. And vent your anger and then try to go back. That's the most natural thing to do. And Jesus is saying, 
hold on just a second. My work here's not done. I'm up to something here. I'm working in this place. I'm working in these relationships. I'm working in your network. I'm working in all of these connections that are going on around you. And you may not see the result for quite some time, but I'm working, and I'm working through you. I'm trying to work through you if you'll let me. So don't let your anger be in control. Don't let your wrath take the lead. But let your anger follow the example of Jesus Christ, who, though he found himself angry many times, never allowed his anger to be a reason for him to sin. You know, this is our story. Our story together is that we follow one who was tempted in every way that we're tempted and yet did not sin. Our story is that we believe in a Savior who came and lived as one of us, experienced what we experienced, went through heartbreak, went through betrayal, went through disappointment, went through hunger, went through frustration, went through anger. Our story is that our Savior has been through what we've been through and yet says, if you'll follow me, I'll show you the way out of here without falling in the pit. If you'll follow me, I'll show you how to get out of here without getting your heart poisoned. If you'll follow me, if you'll follow me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you'll find rest for your soul. This is our story. And it was James and John's story. And as I think about John and everything that he witnessed, everything that he experienced, Everything he saw from the time he was with Jesus in person and the time later on when he was getting to tell the stories about Jesus to people who had never heard it before, I think, boy, every time John thought about Samaria, it must have led him once again to say, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. It must have reminded him one more time of the truth of how much he needed grace too.